0: Would you find the Word of God with me in Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1, I'm sorry, verse number 13. We're at an episode in the life of Joshua that occurs right before they go and fight Jericho. They are making final preparations to attack the city at the command of the Lord. In chapter 5, they get themselves ready in a worship service of recommitment. They observe the sacraments, the Old Testament sacraments of circumcision and Passover And now, at the Lord's command, they are ready to go to war. They're waiting for their marching orders. And we're going to see as we come together next Lord's Day that the Lord will tell them specifically how they are to attack Jericho. But for now, Joshua stands alone. He has led the people in worship, he has led them in their time of recommitment. He goes out to a place where he can see the city of Jericho, and he does what so many of us do he takes a walk before the battle. A breath of fresh air. He stands there alone with Jericho in the background. And beginning in chapter 5, verse 13, here is what happened next. Let's read this together. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us? Or for our adversaries. And he said, that is, the man said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I've come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And this is the word of our God that stands forever. May he bless its proclamation and its hearing. This is a remarkable episode, isn't it? It sends chill bumps down my back. Maybe it does to you. But it starts out rather benignly. Joshua is taking a walk. He is on a prayer walk, as it were. Maybe he's out there praying, seeking the wisdom of the Lord. He is about to lead the people into battle. He is leading the people to take now possession of the land the Lord had promised to give them. The Lord had led them across the swollen rivers of the Jordan the swollen waters of the Jordan River, and he led them across on dry land. They had consecrated themselves to Yahweh's service, and there he is now alone, facing Jericho, thinking about the battle, and suddenly, unexpectedly, and in a most mysterious way, he finds himself in the presence of a man. A man, according to verse 13, who has a sword in his hand. Now, was this a vision? Was it a physical encounter? Well, we're not told explicitly. All we know is Joshua lifted up his eyes, and he saw something. He saw a mysterious figure who suddenly made an appearance in the form of a man. And so there's some degree of familiarity here. He's he's a man, but he's very strange and mysterious, and his sword is unsheathed. He is combat ready. This man is clearly a warrior. He is ready to do battle. He is clearly not a man to be toyed with. He's there and he means business. And maybe you can imagine something like that happening to you. You can picture yourself out maybe by a quiet lake or a quiet stream. And you're just taking a walk. And maybe you're praying, thinking about the future And you turn around, and you see an army ranger there or a navy seal. I mean, out of the blue, there's this well-equipped soldier there. And it would be shocking. It would be stunning and alarming, somewhat threatening intriguing there would be questions popping in and out of your mind you can only imagine what must have been going through Joshua's mind what's he doing here who is he is he going to attack me what does his presence mean and so Joshua then asks the question that's on his mind verse 13 are you for us or are you for our adversaries so at this moment, Joshua doesn't know the answer to that question. He doesn't know who this man is for. He doesn't resemble an Israelite, and he doesn't resemble a Canaanite. This man does not fit Joshua's categories exactly. So who is he? What is he? Whose side is he on in the impending war? What's he going to do? That's the question. And the answer is immediate and very short, isn't it? No. No. No, neither, none of the above. This strange man is not on Joshua's side or the side of the enemy. There's a third option Joshua didn't think about. This stranger is on his side, his own side. It's really not a matter of whose side Joshua's on. It's a matter of this man's side. It's not about Joshua. It's not about the Canaanites. It's about this man. And where does Israel stand in relation to this man? Where does Joshua stand in relation to this man? The warrior is on his own side. Now this is really, it's really interesting in light of what had happened earlier in chapter 5. Again, they had just worshipped the Lord Uh, You can see this in verse 6. The people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, chapter 5, verse 6. They walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And the Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give them. A land flowing with milk and honey. So none of the men are the boys in the current generation of Israel had been recipients of the Old Testament rite of circumcision, the sign of the covenant. And so they engaged in those sacraments of circumcision and Passover. In in the passage we've just read, the command comes down from the Lord for Joshua to have all the sons of Israel, the second generation of Israelites, to receive this covenantal sign a sign symbolic of salvation itself. And so he drew the knife and he applied the sign to the men and the boys, indicative of the grace and power and mercy of God, that he only saves sinners by way of sacrifice, by the shedding of blood. He gives them a new heart. He brings them to life. This sacrament, this sign, albeit strange, is fulfilled in the death of our Lord Jesus because that's the only way that our sins could be removed by the shedding of blood in this incredible ritual that the Lord commanded Joshua to carry out in this new generation of Israelites. would shine the light on the mercy of God seen in the bleeding body of Jesus. And this sacrament in the new covenant gives way to baptism. Uh, symbolizing our union with Christ, our cleansing in His blood, the indwelling of the Spirit and the new life that He gives. And then we are told that before this mysterious man appeared to Joshua, the, the covenant nation celebrated Passover on the 14th month, in the evening, there on the plains of Jericho. Again, a sacred celebration of the mercy of God that, that He passed over them in His wrath. He, he did not pass over the Egyptian home. And he took their firstborn in an act of judgment. But to every Israelite family where the blood was applied to the door, the death angel passed over. And here they celebrate the Lord's mercy, passing over them in mercy, not bringing judgment on them. And of course, that beautiful sacrament gives way to the Lord's Supper, a celebration of the mercy of God a table where we find our spiritual nourishment, where we commune with the resurrected Lord and we celebrate the mercy that has replaced his wrath. Israel was doing all of that. They were in a mode of celebration and worship and Joshua is alone and suddenly this man appears. Could it be that Joshua himself now is being tested. He is being tested. His loyalty is being challenged. Before he takes his people into the heart of the conflict, Joshua must, must pass one more test. How will he respond to the message of this strange man? Who is this strange man? Whose side is he on? Well, in verse 14, the stranger answers with more information about who he is. I am the commander of the army of the Lord, he says. And within that simple statement, there are some identifying clues. There are some ways to discover who he is. First, he speaks of himself as a commander, he's a man of some rank, he's a man of some authority, and he's in an army. And thus his mission, whatever it might be, is most serious. He is a soldier of some type, but he is of superior rank. And then he says, now I've come, I've come. I've come to do business. I'm not going to be passive. I'm not a spectator. I haven't come to see what you're going to do, Joshua. I'm not going to watch. I'm making an appearance for a very definite purpose. I am a commander, the commander, and I represent the army of the Lord. And then there's some other clues that help us identify who this man was. Look at verse 14, when When Joshua continues to converse with him, suddenly Joshua is moved to fall on his face. And note the language, he fell on his face to the earth. He put his face in the ground and he worshipped him. Now Joshua would not have bowed down to anyone but the Lord. Furthermore, Joshua would not have worshipped anyone but the Lord. He was not an idolater. He had proven himself to be true. He he worshipped the Lord God and only the Lord God. He, He had learned that lesson. And now he's dropping to his knees, planting his face in the dust. And he's giving worship to this man. This man who is the commander of an army. Engaging in reverential fear, giving obeisance to this man, the man with the drawn sword. And then from the dust, Joshua raises another question that helps us understand who this man was. Verse 14, what does my Lord... What does my Lord say to his servant? What's amazing is the man in question received the worship of Joshua. You know, had it, been, had it been anyone but the Lord, had it been just a regular angel, the angel would not have received worship. There would have been a protest from, from any other person certainly an angel from God. But this person, this mysterious figure, receives worship. He's way more than a man. He's way more than an angel. He is someone of special excellence, no mere mortal. And his sword, his sword is the weapon of the elite. It designates him as more than an ordinary soldier, more than an ordinary combatant. He is not part of any human army, at least not one that Joshua has ever seen. And so who is he? The only other place where a description like this even remotely appears is in Daniel 8. There Daniel has a prophetic vision of one called the prince of the host. It's similar language. And Daniel, the one he sees is clearly the Lord God himself. And now as we think about Joshua and his conversation with this man, the man he's worshipped, the man he calls Lord, the man he wants to obey, the man he bows before in humble submission, we can only draw the conclusion that this is the Lord himself. The Lord is appearing to Joshua with a sword in his hand. This is a theophany. It is an appearance of the God who is invisible. It is a tangible appearance of Almighty God. And as strange as it is, as unexpected as it is, it is absolutely not unique at all. Because it's happened before. And it will happen yet again. There are many times in the Old Testament where the Lord makes an appearance like this to certain individuals at strategic moments in their lives. And mainly, mainly the Lord's appearance is in the form of this this one we know as the angel of the Lord. In Genesis 16, you might recall That the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid of Abraham. The scripture says the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness. And he spoke to her and comforted her and gave her a promise. And then in Genesis 18, the, the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre and spoke to him and gave him promises. In Exodus 3, the Lord appeared to Moses at the burning bush and from the flames said, I am that I am and commissioned Moses to go and demand the release of the captives. In Judges 6, the Lord appeared to the man we love and know by the name of Gideon. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon went and conquered his armies. And then to a man named Manoah and his wife from the tribe of Dan, a woman he was married to, that is, Manoah was married to, who was barren, and we are told that the angel of the Lord appeared to that woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you will conceive and bear a son. And there the angel of the Lord gives her, gives that couple a magnificent promise. And then in 2 Kings, the prophet Elijah. The prophet Elijah encounters this one called the angel of the Lord and the Lord speaks to him and comforts him and sends him on his way in serving the kingdom. Now, who is the angel of the Lord? Well, I would submit it is the very one that Joshua meets as he looks at Jericho. He is the presiding one. He is the divine messenger, the, un, the, the one who undoubtedly here is the only begotten son of God. The Lord himself is appearing. Our Lord is appearing to Joshua. At a very strategic moment in his life. Now we need to be clear and and remember that the Lord Jesus is not actually becoming incarnate here like he would be at Bethlehem later on. But in this moment the second person of the Holy Trinity is appearing to Joshua in the likeness of a man. An appearance distinct from his actual physical incarnation, but yet very moving and very real and very representative of the person of the Son of God. Pre-incarnate Son of God appearing to Joshua. And when we think about these appearances of the angel of the Lord, who, who I think we should identify as the Lord Jesus himself... God is preparing His people for the day the Lord will be born physically, actually, really in human flesh in Bethlehem. But for now, He is appearing to encourage and commission and embolden and prepare His servants for their task. And so the commander of the Lord's army gives an order because that's what commanders do. They give orders. And the first order Joshua receives in verse 15 is, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy. Isn't it something? That's the same thing that the Lord said to Moses. Moses, He's at the burning bush and he he hears the voice, the voice of the great I am saying, Take off your shoes. The ground upon which you stand is holy. And now that same voice, that same one, has made an appearance to Joshua and made the same demands Take off your shoes. A sign of deep reverence, a sign of total worship. A sign of total worship. The taking off of the sandals indicating that one must be purified from all sin to be in the presence of this king. All dirt must be removed. Even that clinging to your feet must be removed. You must, you must be clean to be in the presence of this great king. And having heard the order of that commander, Joshua in verse 15 is said to have done so immediately. And Joshua did so He took off his shoes, and he worshiped the Lord. That's an amazing encounter. Why did that happen? And maybe the bigger question is, how does such an episode relate to us as the New Covenant people? Well, let's think for a few minutes about why The Lord appeared to Joshua. Why did the pre-incarnate Christ make such an appearance to this man named Joshua right before he led the people across and fought Jericho? Well, I think one of the reasons this is happening is that Joshua himself is being commissioned as the one who will guide his people. But, But maybe it's better to say... It is the Lord who will guide his people through Joshua. Joshua will be a man under orders. So right before he goes to Jericho, he is being tested, as it were. His allegiance is being tested. His loyalty is being tested. Will he be a man under command? Will he be a man under orders? Will he obey the voice of the Lord? Will he offer swift and complete obedience to the one who is the captain of his soul? And that's one reason it's there. And that's why it's relevant to us. In this episode, we see the necessity of obeying the one who is our commander, obeying him all the time, being under his reign. He is the king, he is the leader. It is his voice we follow. It is his plan we submit to. And so the life of obedience is a life for all of the people of God, even if your name is Joshua. And every saint of God should respond to the voice of the commander in the same way Joshua did, immediately, without question, If he says take off your shoes, you take off your shoes. If he says march, you march. If he says draw the sword and fight, you draw the sword and fight. If he says run, you run. Whatever he says do, he is the commander, he is the captain, and we exist to obey. And so certainly that's why this is there. It helps us see the necessity of obedience. And to remember, as the Apostle Peter would say, we've been saved from God's wrath for obedience to Jesus Christ. We have been saved to obey. But maybe there's another reason this happened. It's to remind Joshua and every saint of God that the battle is the Lord's battle we'll see beginning next week that they make their way toward Jericho. But it is the Lord's battle they are engaged in. It is not an Israelite battle. It is not that, that, that God is for Israel. No. The question is, is Israel for God? It isn't, is God on Joshua's side? It's, is Joshua On God's side. Is Joshua doing God's will? Is Joshua conducting God's holy war or his own? And there's a difference. Israel and Joshua must remain on the side of the Lord. They must serve his sacred cause. It is his battle, not theirs. They need to remember whose side they're on. But you see something else here that admittedly may be difficult. If indeed this is the pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, I should add, the greats among the scholars, the greats among the doctors of the church have concluded that. That. This isn't some harebrained opinion of your harebrained pastor. No, this is the the testimony of the church that this was the pre-incarnate Christ. I'm just telling you what they said. If that's true, if indeed this is our Lord Jesus Christ, let us not lose sight of the fact that he stands before Joshua with a sword in his hand. It is the Son. Oh, I know you're going to want to resist this, but it is the gospel truth. It is the Son who wields the wrath of God. The Son of God appears before Joshua. He appears as Joshua's Savior, but as the judge of all of his enemies. You see, Jesus is much more than the King of love and mercy, although he is that. Oh, praise his name. He is the king of love and mercy. Praise his name. And you've tasted it. You know it. You've, you've experienced the love and mercy of Jesus. We've seen the love and mercy of Jesus dramatically played out in baptism this morning. And in a few minutes when I get through with this, we're going to do it again at the Lord's table. We will celebrate the love and mercy of Jesus. But he's more than that. No, he's Judge. He carries out the wrath of His Father. He has a sword in His hand. And when Israel does march into Jericho, they will wield the sword of Jesus. And they will give sinners what they truly deserve. His mercy only means something in light of his sword. If he had no sword, there would be no need for mercy. Joshua and the people of Israel have received the mercy of God. They did not deserve that. That was a gift, sovereignly given from heaven upon the undeserving. They know Christ as the merciful king of love. But there are those who will persistently reject the gospel, and they will see not the mercy, but the wrath of God. And that is, my dear brothers and sisters, the shadow side of the gospel. We are saved from the sword of the Lord by the one who bears that sword, the Son of God. As I've reflected on this passage all week, my mind kept jumping ahead to the final book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation. and isn't it something that as John the Apostle writes down his massive and blessed and glorious vision of Jesus, he describes the, the second advent and listen to his description, and now you're going to hear it with a fuller sense of its meaning. Listen to the way John describes The coming of Jesus. Then I saw heaven open, he says, and behold a white horse. That is the horse of a warrior. And the one sitting on the horse is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. That is, He wears the colors of all the nations that he has conquered on his head. He is the king of all nations. He has conquered every one of them. There are many diadems in his crown. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, the blood of his enemies. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies arrayed in fine linen are following him, and they too on white horses. And then listen to John's description in chapter 19, verse 15. From his mouth, from the mouth of the one riding the white horse, from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, as he comes back, there is a sharp sword And with it, he strikes down the nations, and he rules them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of God's wrath, God Almighty. And that one who is coming appeared to Joshua with sword drawn in his hand, Savior, merciful, loving King, Judge, And ruler of all men. The true Christ. The true Jesus. The one who is. Later our Lord, from his own mouth, will confess the same facts. He will say in John, The Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Again, Five verses later, he has given him, Jesus says, the Father has given me authority to execute judgment because I am the Son of Man. It is the Son of Man who appeared to Joshua. And when we see the Son of Man, we see mercy and justice. And that's the Jesus who is. But there's something else here. Joshua, before he goes into battle, must worship. The worship of God must precede the service of God. Worship, Joshua was learning, and we are learning, is the ultimate priority even before battle. Even before taking possession of the blessing. Even before engaging in the Lord's fight. The priority is worship. Even before service. Even before service as disciples of Jesus. The recognition of God's holiness is imperative, and Joshua was learning that, and we learn that as well. Think about about the calling of Moses. Here Moses is, on the backside of nowhere, way out in the wilderness, not yet serving the Lord, and he has this vision of God, and he worships the Lord at the burning bush, and then having worshipped the Lord, the Lord sends him to Pharaoh to do battle with the most powerful man on the face of the earth, to release the captives, to to bring them home. But Moses worshipped before he served. And think about Isaiah. The great prophet. Before he engages in his ministry of preaching to the southern kingdom of judah in chapter 6 he sees the lord high and lifted up the train of his robe filling the temple and he hears the cherubim crying out one to another holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and he cries out woe is me he worships the lord And then he says to the Lord, here I am, send me, send me. And after him the prophet Ezekiel, before he engages in his ministry of calling his own people back to the Lord. Of giving them the word they need in exile to enliven them, to bring them to life and to lead them back home. He has a vision of the Lord and he says the appearance of the Lord was so glorious I fell on my face. And here Joshua is worshiping before he serves. He is worshiping before he fights. And doesn't that remind us of what happened to the twelve disciples, the eleven disciples? In that great chapter where we find the great commission, we read these words, strange, strangely how they connect. The 11 disciples following the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord, they went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And Jesus came to them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. Have you ever read that in connection to the Great Commission? Those are the words that precede the Great Commission. The 11 disciples, what do they do before they're sent to the world? What do they do before they teach and they baptize? What do they do before they fight the good fight of faith? They worship the Lord. They fell down and worshipped him. And then Jesus on that scene says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now go make disciples. And this was happening to Joshua. Worship me. Worship me. Remember who I am. Recognize my holiness. Deal with my identity. Deal with my kingship. And then follow me. And this is why it's relevant to us. Worship fuels everything we do. Some of you are wondering why we built a worship center like this and a smaller place for education. Well, it was because we had limited funds. I didn't mean you to laugh at that, although that is kind of funny, actually. Yeah, we had a finite quantity of funds. And we want to be good stewards. But we want to worship first. We want to worship first. And we'll make do. We'll do the best we can with everything else. But worship is the priority. Because if we don't worship the Lord, then everything else we do is in vain. We must worship the Lord. And this is the lesson Joshua was learning. Before we fight, before we serve, we must be a people who worship the Lord. We can't fight the good fight of faith. We can't carry the gospel to the nations. We can't carry it across the street if we're not people who've met the Lord and who worship Him. Before we fight and serve, we must worship. Everything we do must flow from the worship of God. What happens on the Lord's day in this place is the most important thing in the world. And this is the lesson Joshua learned and Ezekiel learned and Isaiah learned and the disciples learned. And after we've worshipped, after we've met the Lord and Seen him high and lifted up. Then we're ready to fight. And in just a few minutes, we are going to be deployed into Jericho. We're going to go carry the gospel to the world. We're going to bear the fruit of the kingdom. But we do it because we've been mercied by the commander of the Lord's army. He has saved us and commissioned us and sent us into the world with his gospel. In the 34th Psalm, King David says something quite interesting. In a moment of confession, as he's fighting the fight of faith, He says, this poor man cried. Can you identify with that? Here's the king. (laughs) This poor man cried. David was in a fight. He was a disciple. He was serving the Lord. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. And then he says this. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And he delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Do you see what David has done? He's done the same thing Joshua learned. That we can only fight when we've worshipped. And so now we're ready to fight. Now we're ready to walk into Jericho and to obey the Lord because we've met with the one who is the captain of the Lord's host, the commander of the Lord's army, the captain of our souls. And he is the king. And he loves us. And he's encamped among us. It is his fight. It is his service. It is his war. It is for his name. It is his agenda. And we are for him. We are for Him. Praise His name. And all God's people said, Amen.